Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf, coming to you from Los Angeles. In Palo Alto, we have Corey Shockey of Stanford University. In Washington, in our studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, we have Mackenzie Eaglin of the American Enterprise Institute, where she's a defense policy analyst. And we have Rosa Brooks, who is of Georgetown University. Um, We've been talking a little bit in recent episodes about things happening just in the U.S., and I'd like to shift our focus uh, back to uh, some bigger foreign policy issues. Um, One thing that strikes me as I look at the news right now is that almost every major sort of pivot point, crisis point, flashpoint in the Middle East is about to undergo a transition. Uh, we have the U.S. and other forces. Can a about pivot to, point pivot? A pivot point could pivot. Possibly it could flash, hmm. uh, becoming a flashpoint. Um, uh, but that's kind of beside the point, if you will. The, you know, we have ISIS and the campaign against ISIS looking like uh, it may have reached a turning point in in Raqqa, at least for now, um, and uh, uh, and their role in in this mix may be changing. Uh, clearly, we're at a turning point in Syria, uh, in Iraq. We're at a, a turning point. We also had the Iraqis go after the Kurds recently. Um, uh, there are major changes afoot in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and some internal struggles about who's going to be in charge there. Uh, the relationship between Iran and the rest of the world has been called into question. You've even got Bibi Netanyahu um, in Israel um, uh, uh, facing, you know, potential indictment and a whole sort of other wholesale political problems. Um, uh, and strangely, for the first time in the history of the Middle East, Egypt. Um, is not that much of a, a factor as a as an actor in these other issues. It's it's called, its own internal problems are a bigger issue. So we've got all this transition going on, and no clear center of power. And so the question becomes not where have we been, which is what we talk about, but where are we going? Where does the transition take us? Who drives the transition? Um, and uh, let me turn to you first, Rosa. Well, why do we assume that anybody should or will drive the transition? I, you know, it's it's not particularly clear to me that we can say that who's been driving it for the past fifteen years either. Uh, I mean, the U.S., for instance, has certainly played a major role that others have reacted to. I'm not sure that's the same as driving something. Driving implies a sort of purposiveness that I think we have 
often lacked. Um, so I, you know, my, my, my guess would be nobody drives it, that we have another 10 years or so in which we have lots of different players jostling for power and influence uh, and failing to get much traction beyond uh, very specific situations. You know, and, and who, who at the end of that, if anybody comes out as sort of the major player or players, I don't know. But I can't see any particular reason that things are going to change. The, the, the sort of the the driverless jostling uh, those are those are wrong words, but uh, I you know I think that's going to continue. Mackenzie, what do you, what, do, what do you think? I mean, driverless jostling continues to, until some pattern takes place, until somebody gets an upper hand, until somebody starts you know forcing the issues in their direction, and there's certainly actors there who want to do it. I'm just, you know, is, are we just in a period of permanent, you know, rudderless, um, you know, meandering, or, or, or do you see sort of the possibility of something emerging? I think that's a fair characterization, the, the muddle through. And in fact, Washington's been dealing with this in many, that's been the response to many different problems, ranging from how to fund the government and at what levels and what's a priority under those levels and that manifests as well in foreign policy um, through the things you and Rosa just discussed. So what I see, and I hope I'm on Deep State Radio because I'm an equal opportunity criticizer, uh, you know, I see the last three presidents, including this one, as very reactive in the foreign policy space, and that seems to be the new habit, the new normal, is that we're just going to react uh, to the the wolf closest to the sled, the problem that's most immediate at our doorstep that we just have to deal with right now, and then we'll get to the next one when we can. We'll probably have to come back to that other problem because we didn't solve it well enough. <laughs> to react to the wolf closest to the sled by throwing Rex Tillerson overboard. <laughs> so, you know, I do see this um, this new this new sort of preferred habit, whether it's by design or default, uh, as Washington's choice. What doesn't change, of course, are our enduring national interests in the region, and the energy level of those who are appointed uh, and leading agencies charged to, to help oversee them. You know, I think it was a myth of uh, different presidents and secretaries of defense previously to say, you know, basically we could eventually see ourselves getting out of the Middle East. The United States, I don't see a future where we don't have interests, deep national interests, even if the balance of, you know, even if the energy situation changes for the U.S. with fracking and shale and other things, we're going to be there and we're always going to be there for a whole host of reasons that have nothing to do with energy. So maybe a little honesty uh, in our muddle through would be a little more helpful to thinking it through. Corey, where, 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 do, you, where, where do you think we're going? I mean, I, I find periods of muddle through to be extremely unnerving because there is no institutional structure. You don't know how things will be stabilized. Opportunists see this as an opportunity to sort of push because no one else is able to push back. Um, and and it and 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 they're more dangerous as a consequence. But but perhaps you have a different view. Uh, no, I don't have a different view, David. I I think. In general, though, we overstate the extent to which the United States has grand strategies, um, clear priorities, and the continued consistent will to carry them out. I think mostly we muddle through, hoping that we don't get called on to 
to carry out what we said we're going to do and hoping things don't blow up in our face. Uh, so, so you're right. Uh, periods of muddling through are, are anxious times and they leave opportunities for adversaries. Uh, but I think that's mostly what we do uh, as a country. And Mackenzie's point about the incapacity of Congress to, to get its act together, let me just say she has just written an outstanding evaluation of how to repair and rebuild American military capacity that would take us out of this muddle through um, approach that we have had since at least uh, sequestration started being the law of the land nine years ago and no president has passed a budget that didn't trigger the ceilings. That we, the, the time has passed where we should settle for that. We, the world actually is growing more dangerous and we actually do need to pay more attention, be more disciplined and prioritize what our interests are and how to achieve them than we have been doing for at least the last 12 or 13 years. So can I speak in favor of muddling through, um, you know, or at least a certain kind of muddling through? I sometimes think muddling through gets a bad name um, because, you, you know, there's sort of two kinds of muddling. You very seldom hear a strong defense of muddling through. Well, and I'm going to make here. one. But but there there's muddling through which it takes the form of screwing up. You know, if we don't know what we're doing, we never stop to think about it. You know, we do contradictory things that are self-undermining, that damage our interests. Nobody likes that kind of muddling through. And I do think we've had a lot of that over the last 15 years in the Middle East as well as in various other parts of the world. On the other hand, there is strategic muddling through, if you will, which is to say saying, you know what, we have – we do have certain priorities. This is not one of them. Uh and this, we don't want this to become one of them. We we don't think it has to become one of them. And we're going to be kind of reactive because we don't really care. You know, we don't want things to get really horrifically awful and, and involve uh, doing serious damage to U.S. interests or U.S. lives or U.S. allies. But we don't really care if things are good. And I mean, we've had this conversation in the context of things like current U.S. policy in Afghanistan, uh, which I think, you know, the criticism that could be leveled against not only current policy, but really the last decade of policy in Afghanistan is, wait, what are we doing? We're not really accomplishing anything noticeable. Uh, the defense of what we're doing in Afghanistan, which is not the defense that is ever made either by the Obama administration or the Trump administration, but the defense would be, we don't have to. You know, all we need to do is muddle through just effectively enough to keep something horrifically awful from happening. And that, frankly, is our that is our aspiration. You know, muddling through with no disaster is good enough. Um, and, and I think sometimes it is, right? Sometimes we're wrong about which situations muddling through is sufficient. Um, but, but, but I actually think that sort of strategic muddling through in areas that are not our priorities, as long as we're being thoughtful about it, you know, that there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that. Uh, and, and it may very well be that the Middle East at this moment, that muddling through is the right approach. Not, not that I dispute uh, what Mackenzie said about the U.S. does have enduring national interests in the region. We do, but particularly in an atmosphere of so much chaos and uncertainty, um, I'm not sure we have any ability whatsoever to come up with a policy 
with an approach that is better than muddling through and being kind of reactive and saying, boy, this is a giant confusing mess. Um, we kind of hope it doesn't turn into a bigger giant confusing mess. Um, but we don't really know what to do. So we're going to kind of maintain a presence, be reactive, you know, do something if we absolutely have to. And, and that's our strategy. And maybe that's okay. Well, first of all, Ladies and gentlemen out there in, you know, Snarkatopia, the, the, the listeners to this show, um, I think we're at the, the beginning of it, one of those really big ideas, um, and that is strategic muddling through. <laughs> I should um, write a book about this. You should write a book <laughs> they can about it. They call it the Rosa it, Doctrine. It, <laughs> it, it, you can, and what's more, it's one of the few books that could be both as good for foreign policy as it could be for self-help. <laughs> I mean, it is how most of us lead our lives, um, and uh, it, it has built into it a whole sort of philosophy of humility and inability to change circumstances and recognizing, therefore, that you've got to be strategic about dealing all with all the things you can't change. Well, in um, fact, I it, wrote a piece for foreign policy at, when you were at the helm, David, making precisely those points. Now I will expand it into a book. A short monograph. It, a book or at least, you know, an article for Vanity Fair. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if strategic muddling through is at the center of your prescriptions for the U.S. military, Mackenzie. Will you by any chance... The, 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 the sly blobist who managed to persuade the president that we should increase our nuclear arsenal 10 times over? I was not, but I am aware... Because remember my my tidbit that I, I briefed his campaign, Nu the nuclear triad, the state of it and its modernization plans was one of the very few briefings candidate Trump took in person with policy experts. I was not there. He loves nukes. He loves nukes. I mean, he really does. In fact, I, you know, he, I, I, if he could increase the triad to, uh, I don't know what it would be with four. Pentad. Quadrad. Quadrad. A quadruped. A a dog, um, he would do that. But um, uh, it, it raises an interesting point because strategic muddling or strategic muddling through is essentially what we do. We don't, as Corey said, typically have these sort of master policies, certainly not since the Cold War. Um, there is no sort of vision of America's role in the world or the world is affected by America's role in the world. It is pretty reactive. And yet we've built a military around the principle that we are the leader, we will guide, we will shape things wherever they are. Um, and that's why it's worth paying all this money so we can lead. But strategic muddling through is not leadership. And I'm just wondering how you reconcile those two. It's not. I, in most cases, it's not. But in the absence of that clear leadership from the White House, the ultimate authority on foreign policy in particular, that's, that's a pretty good outcome, uh, you could say. I mean, here's the challenge for defense planners everywhere, which I'd like to affiliate myself with often. You know, we don't sit down and say, well, here's, you know, it's sort of, we call it the roles and missions, but very few times do we ever say this is something we can stop doing by that i mean like marines guarding embassies after benghazi nobody would ever agree to that anymore but nonetheless it's like an it's a reasonable thing to talk about um, air sovereignty alert over all the u.s cities 
We mobilize the Air Force like dozens of times a day, all of our best fighters in the inventory, you know, and they're keeping out prop planes and crop dusters. I mean, the, this is not, nine, you know, we're so far from 9-11, we need to reevaluate the, you know, the, the things that we're asking uh, our forces to do. I, I think it's time to say this is what we will not do. We're doing it in foreign policy. So Rosa brought up Afghanistan, but the first thing that came to my mind was Syria. We've chosen with this president and the last one to do very little. I and mean, you could say nothing, but that's probably not totally true. The whole ISIS cover, I mean, look, we're going to pursue terrorists everywhere all the time. So I don't even really see that as doing something in Syria. I see that as a counterterror campaign that's global. Um, but we've chosen to not do something actively, but we cannot seem to do that. You know, if, if foreign policy is the parent and defense policy is the child, of which that's the relationship metaphor I often use, uh, we don't do the same thing when it comes to what we want the military to do and not do, even as even if the foreign policy default is muddling through. Um, Corey, I just I'm really interested in hearing your take on this sort of broader concept of leadership versus strategic muddling through? So um, I, even though I think we mostly muddle through, I'm strongly in favor of us not just muddling through, not only because uh, nature abhors a vacuum and others will move in to as the Russians did in Syria, to change... Uh, the calculus in entire regions if we are inactive and just muddling through. But also we miss a huge number of opportunities if we don't have a vision of an international order where the United States has the latitude to set rules, build institutions, and foster relationships that make us free and prosperous. Uh, so so we're missing an enormous number of opportunities. And my favorite example, I know you guys get tired of me beating this horse, but it is true that the biggest opportunity the United States is missing is consolidation of a democratic North America, of, of creating a common energy space across Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, of deepening the cooperation in all sorts of areas of governance, my personal favorite example at the moment is the mayor of San Diego and the mayor of Tijuana traveling around the United States, giving talks about the benefits of NAFTA in the districts of key congressional votes on the subject. I think that's a super smart way to affect American policy and not just let either a muddle through of of not taking advantage of the opportunities or to let a genuinely bad idea, the one President Trump uh, campaigned on and appears to be effectuating, which is the destruction of the NAFTA agreement. I also love Mackenzie's example that the right question to ask ourselves about innovation is what can we stop doing? Uh, that's so much harder in foreign policy, though. And, and here the example is South Korea, right? If North, if North Korea attacked South Korea, South Korea would win that war and they would win it fast. It would be extremely costly uh, 
in terms of South Korean lives, but there's no doubt that they could actually win that war. And yet the South Koreans would, would be in paroxysms of anxiety if the United States tried to withdraw its troops from South Korea because it makes them feel much more comfortable, much safer. When we even drew down the numbers of U.S. forces in South Korea during the Bush administration, it, it created a real crisis of confidence. So the bad news is that it's much harder to apply the good defense planners, here's what we can stop doing in foreign policy. The good news is we have the kind of relationships with other countries that when we lead, when we have a vision for the future and are willing to bring American power to bear on it, uh, others help us. And here my favorite example is Kosovo, right? Like the NATO intervention to prevent Serbs from massacring Kosovars into submission in, what was it, 1999. Um, the United States had to be the leader on that. We had to be the bulk of the force to make it possible. And what we have seen uh, since then is the NATO alliance came along with us because we had a vision and were willing to put power to it over time as our European allies had more capability for what was needed doing. The responsibility shifted. We are now, what, on the ground in Kosovo, I think we're 10 to 15% of the force. And the NATO allies are bearing all the rest of that burden over the long haul that it will take before it becomes a self-sustaining solution. So, so yeah, running the international order is messy and sticky and you can't do it with elegant planning, but it's unquestionably in our interest to still do it. Very great deal to unpack there. When you started with saying you were going back to your favorite subject, I thought you were going to go to Shays Rebellion or something like that. Whiskey <laughs> um, Rebellion. But you, you, you made like a, a bit of a jog off to the mayor of San Diego and some folks from Mexico. So I knew you were then going to the follow-up on the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, um, <laughs> also one of your favorite subjects. Um, but all of this gets us into a kind of uh, an issue, not just about what is the U.S. role, because frankly, um, I, I concur with conclusions of each of you that America's likelihood of intervening in this transitional period in the Middle East in an effective way with a vision is lower than it's been. And, it, and, and, and Donald Trump is responsible, uh, Barack Obama is responsible, uh, George W. Bush is responsible, Bill Clinton is responsible. Since the end of the Cold War, there has been this kind of retrenchment in most places. But the example... I mean, and Corey used the term, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. The example of Kosovo is a good one uh, because we did step in and we played an important role. But if you remember, as, as Kosovo was unfolding there, uh, there was an incident of Russian military rushing, um, you know, into the void to try to tip the scales their way. And it was only U.S. Uh, US involvement that offset that. Well, now there isn't any U.S. involvement. And the Russians did roll into Syria, and the Iranians have rolled into Lebanon and relationships with Hamas and into Iraq and, and, and so forth. And there are people who are going to seize this initiative. And this is one of the, you know, the sort of 
you know, there was a book that came out by, you know, Ian Bremmer a while ago, talked about the G-Zero world. And while I like Ian, I think he's a smart guy. This was, you know, uh, not a reasonable fantasy to me because nature does abhor a vacuum. There is no, even in the muddle-through scenario, there is no G-Zero muddle-through scenario. Somebody always emerges as the dominant power. Somebody always achieves more of their goals in getting things to work out. And if we're leaning back, somebody else is going to be leaning in. And so the question in the remaining 10 minutes we've got here, starting with you, Rosa, is who's leaning in? Is it going to be the Russians and the Iranians? Is it going to be some new alliance of the moderates? Uh, is it you know is it going to be the Chinese? You know we're we're not going to do it. It seems who mm-hmm. is? No, I think I think it's the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese, and exactly. practically every actor that does not like uh, the the decades of U.S. hegemony is leaning in while we are busy, and they're they're right to do so. It's smart foreign policy on their part. Um, you know, I, I think and I think you're right that that's the big danger for us, that unstrategic muddling just creates opportunities for more strategic muddlers and, and more strategic leaders in general to, to, to move up, to move in. You, you know, I, particularly when I mean, Corey, I think her point uh, in you're not being you're not being a broken record at all, Corey. Um, that one of the opportunities that the U.S. has missed, for instance, is to have a much more robust and effective North American alliance with with Canada, with Mexico on multiple different issues. You know, interestingly, when you look at other hemispheres, um, you know, the the Chinese are extremely aggressively focusing on Africa, extremely aggressively focusing on Central Asia, that while we're sort of snoozing and missing opportunities, uh, China, which has historically been extremely inward looking, has become an extremely outward looking nation and is quietly using its economic power uh, as well, backed by its military power to make inroads you know, in many parts of the globe that we have decided to ignore. Africa is obviously also a part of the globe that the U.S. has historically tended to ignore. Um, and it's really dumb of us. Uh, you know, it's, 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 I, you know, I've said before, if, if I had to place a bet and on, you know, which which state is most likely to emerge as the next big, big, big global power? I would probably put my money on China. Yeah. Um, We've had that discussion before here. It's hard to put your money on anybody else. They do approach this strategically. You know, we, you know, or saw a couple months ago them opening their first military base in Djibouti. They're talking about uh, the first military base outside of China. They're talking about another in Pakistan with one belt, one road. They're building ties into the region. They're the leading trading partner, the number two trading partner of almost every major country in the region, um, including the Israelis, the Saudis, the Iranians, and so forth. And, um, you know, on top of all of this, you know, their biggest embassy in the world is in Pakistan. They're spending billions and billions connecting. They have a strategy. It's, you know, so when we say, you know, that, that, you know, it doesn't happen, et cetera, et cetera, they actually, they are doing that. Mackenzie, um, what's your take on how the void gets filled? Well, so far, I agree with what Rosa said and your characterization, David. What we're seeing by region uh, are each of these emerging hegemons or those desiring at uh, getting what they want. Right. There's a slow rewriting of the rules in 
their favor and not ours. And by ours, of course, I mean the liberal international order. And it's it's working because it's the boil the frog in the pot approach, right? Even when there have been dramatic, dramatic actions that sh- probably did warrant more than a muddle through. So um, s- stealing land from Crimea. Uh, I, last week, I spent time with the U.S. Army Europe commander, and he talked about how Russia is building basically a land bridge to connect it to the motherland, making this a very permanent uh uh, piece of land now that's not coming back, right? It's never going to be <laughs> Crimea again, or at least, you know, a sovereign state. Uh, shooting down the commercial airliner, the air defense identification zone by China, uh, dazzling our satellites, the anti-satellite test. I mean, there's been lots of uh, events that probably warranted more than uh, we're too busy muddling through to, to take on any one of these issues to change the outcome. Uh, Yemen, Venezuela, we could go on and on, but um, but we're not. And so, so in each region, uh, I think they are ascendant, Iran, Russia, and China. And to both of your points, China is certainly globally. So two weeks ago, I was at a different meeting with the, um, being very deep statey, I was at a different meeting with the chief of naval operations, and he started out the conversation, and he put up a slide, and it had, um, you know, the global Navy and different shadowy icons of ships and where they were, Djibouti, of course, and all these different places talking. He was just hitting on some of the highlights and going over priorities in each region. And then, of course, the next slide was, oh, wait, that's not our Navy. That's China, <laughs> China's. Very well Because they done. are now a yeah. global Navy officially. And so uh, I, I say all that they're all mm. ascendant, but I think in the end, this is China that will be in the the most fiercest competition with in the long term. And I do think before Corey jumps in, you know, that this this very much ties back in with Mackenzie's comments earlier about uh, how the thing that we find hardest to do is stop doing stuff. Because unless you stop doing some stuff, you can't start doing new stuff. It makes it very hard to do anything other than muddle through in the least strategic way. You know, and, and I do think that the United States has a particularly bad case of uh, inability to conduct serious cost-benefit analysis or risk analysis. So so, so all of the – we're not very ruthless in some ways. I mean, we, we – critics of U.S. hegemony would say that we're very ruthless. I actually think that we're not particularly ruthless. I think the Chinese have – the Chinese don't waste any time thinking – yeah, we're going to take that risk and could backfire and a whole bunch of Chinese people get killed. Too bad. Move on. We have a really tough time doing that uh, on any issue. You know, so once we have created some expectation, some reliance interest anywhere, we have a we do, in fact, have a really tough time moving on, particularly when it affects domestic constituencies. Um, but then the cost of that is that we're, you know, this and this is to some extent, obviously, been characteristic of many empires in their declining phases that we we we're spread too thin. Uh, we're trying to maintain all kinds of commitments that don't really make any particular sense given current realities, and we're unable to seize any real opportunities or even react effectively to threats because we're spread too thin doing dumb stuff that we probably shouldn't be doing at all. Okay, we've only got three minutes left here, um, Corey and. I want to give you a chance to wrap some of this up, but I'm hearing something else in all of it. Uh, we're strategically muddling through. That creates a bit of a void. Um, the Chinese or the Russians and the Iranians are sort of stepping in with a near-term opportunistic game. The Chinese have a longer-term play here. 
one of the things we haven't talked about, but it sounds to me like one of the big losers, and again, we only have two minutes here, but one of the big losers are kind of our traditional, quote, moderate Arab allies. That, you know, Egypt's already sort of collapsed and sort of out of the game in the way that it's already, you know, it's traditionally been in the game. Saudi Arabia looks like it's got a lot of internal problems. They're bogged down in Yemen, et cetera, et cetera. That, that I, you know, the Jordanians have a lot of internal problems and weakness and so forth. Iraq has already tipped over into the Iran camp. Um, is, is, is it fair to say that, 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 you know, without making you know final prediction, that their position in this looks weak. So it is fair to say, but I believe it is inaccurate. And so this is one of those rare occasions where I am going to both disagree with David and disagree with Rosa. Ah. <laughs> well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. <laughs> well, so, go on. Because uh, you. We always have a very clear eye of our faults, or we don't always, we should always, and you two superb analysts do always have a very clear eye about the follies and uh, mistakes that the United States makes in the world. But I believe you are according to potential contenders to America's position, all of our strengths and none of our weaknesses. And, and China may have hit its high watermark as a rising power now because of the difficulties of sustaining unrepresentative governance and the, the economic difficulties of leaping across the middle income trap. Um, it, I, I genuinely believe, I promise I will stop uh, right here, David, after saying that I genuinely believe that there has seldom been a better time for American power in the international order. Not only are we strong, our friends are strong. And we are not only objectively strong, we are strong relative to the challenges coming at us. And we're extremely anxious about them, and we should be, because that's how we will fix our mistakes and sustain our advantages. But our advantages are much more enduring than I think either of you are giving credit for. Wow. You still there, Rosa? Ha! She fled us a political statement <laughs> halfway through. Yeah, I, yeah she, I just wanted to say, because I think you permanently retired the tiara of optimism. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it makes us all feel better. David, um, I uh, what I'm saying. Well, no, I know you do. Yeah, I, I get, I get it. I, that's why we feel better. If you didn't fully believe it, we might not. Well, look, I mean, I think that's as strong a place to end as any. I, we, I think we have some differing views on all of this, um, but these are the big questions, and we leave you with strategic muddling through the potential rise of China, the potential fall of the moderate Arab states, and Corey's view that the United States is stronger with and with our allies um, and than we have been and that we will be for a long time to come. So nothing more to talk about. Everything's great, ladies and gentlemen, but it could all go wrong between now and next week. So please join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. I want to thank you, Mackenzie, for joining us. You were great to have on. Hope you will come back. 
I want to thank Rosa, who's off, you know, in some police drill at the moment, making us all safe in Washington, D.C. And I want to thank you, Corey. um, And we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, everybody. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.